Hi, I'm George. And I'm Kit. Welcome to Starry Time, where stars plus lines equal stories. On this month's podcast, we're going to be visiting the water bearer of the sky, the constellation Aquarius. Aquarius is the second largest zodiac constellation and the 10th largest of the IAU recognized constellations. There's so much cool stuff in this part of the sky. And Aquarius isn't just an IAU constellation. It's actually one of the original constellations identified by Ptolemy. Finally, we get to talk about Ptolemy. A quick little detour. Who's Ptolemy? What's his deal? Honestly... I don't think there was anything that Ptolemy wasn't doing. He was just an everything guy. Mathematician, astronomer, astrologer. I know that's your favorite. I'm desperately trying to make this the world's worst astrology podcast for sure. I know it. So Claudius Ptolemy was also a geographer and a music theorist, and he lived between 100 CE and 165 or 170 CE. And he did just do a little bit of everything, it seems like. I mean, to be fair, no internet internet for Ptolemy, mm. you know, lots of free time, you know, who knows what we could do with less distractions in our life. It checks out. It checks out. That's what I have to tell myself. So Ptolemy is notable for a lot of reasons, but for today, our focus will be on the Almagest. Almagest, is that right? Yeah, it's, I think the G is pronounced like a J here. I'm not sure, but I've always said it Almagest, but mm. it's also, of course, titled alternatively, the Mathematics Syntaxis. Yes, uh, the Mathematical Systematic Treatise, what a page turner. But it is, among other things, our favorite, a star catalog. Yeah, so basically Ptolemy was the IAU of the ancient world. He was the original IAU. Long before our good friend Bayer. Long, long before Bayer got there, yes. Yeah, because he wrote the Almagest in the 2nd century, and it was widely used until the 17th century identified 48 constellations, but sort of like our friend Johann Baer from last episode, what he's describing is his night sky, and only some parts of the night sky are recorded. Yeah, it's not a full night sky. He's stuck on the part of Earth that he knows. He's making the best with the sky he's got. Definitely. And while Ptolemy wrote a lot of influential works in astronomy, they were all actually geocentric rather than heliocentric models of our solar system. A good reminder that even the most genius polymaths among us make mistakes, and science is constantly self-correcting and evolving. Definitely. And that's something I like to remind myself about a lot. I read this really great book about black holes, like everyone does in their free time, totally normal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just recreational <laughs> light reading about just black li- holes. Right. Yes. But the, my favorite parts of this book were just about famous scientists getting things wrong or some like young upstart putting something out there and all of these really influential, famous scientists being like, that's stupid, and then it turns out they were right, really brings me a lot of comfort. I mean, it happens more often than we think. I was just reading this quote from Kelvin, and it's from 1900, and he basically says, like, there's nothing in physics that hasn't been discovered already. And you're like, oh, just you wait five years, my guy. Einstein's going to come around and really mess with that. Um, But yeah, uh, Marie Curie is another great example Mm -hmm. But yeah, Aquarius is one of the original Ptolemy Great 48 constellations. It's been with us since ancient times. 
Yeah, and we'll keep pointing them out as we see them. Although I should note that Capricornus is another one of, as you say, Ptolemy's Great 48. Uh, I'll have to make that catch on. Yeah, that's his hit album, The Great 48. <laughs> totally. So now that we have a little history, let's talk about what this constellation looks like in the night sky. What were your first impressions when you looked this one up, Jordan? Yeah, I didn't get much here, Kit. I mean, it looks mm-hmm. distorted. It kind of mm-hmm. looks like a person falling over, maybe a stick figure reaching up or... Maybe more abstractly, it kind of looks like a hinge or like a complicated mm. set of hinges. A hinge. Wow. I, I, I'd have to look at it again to get hinge, but all of those were more creative. When I was writing my initial impressions, I was like, W, E, M, you know, like just like a three-pronged letter. No, it reminds me of like one of those branching out taxonomical charts or something. Yeah, and I think like you said, there is something more human-y here than in Capricornus, but it does still take a lot of imagination to get to something as specific as a water bearer. Yeah, I could make out something closer to a stick figure as opposed to just like a purely abstract (laughs) shape like Capricornus. But yeah, if you're trying to imagine a vase and a water Mm. carrier and a person, it takes a lot of work. You got to kind of put that in yourself. Definitely. So I guess these descriptions are at least like slightly more helpful. I think we did slightly better. Yeah, slightly better than our first episode with Capricornus. But they're probably still not quite sufficient for someone to find it in the night sky without a little bit more information. So... Where and when can we find this constellation, Jordan? Tell us. I mean, no offense to your wonderful description, but I can put together lots of M's and E's in the sky. (laughs) But as we talked about in our last episode, the astrological and astronomical dates no longer line up. So if you want to hang out with Aquarius, it's actually best viewed in October in the Northern Hemisphere. However, if you're lucky enough to be in the Southern Hemisphere, you can still hang out with it in springtime. Yeah, its right ascension is 22.71 hours and its declination is negative 10.91 degrees. And if that's not helpful, it's near some other water signs, including our friend Precus, a.k.a. Ajapan, a.k.a. Capricornus. It's near Pisces. And this whole area of the sky is sometimes referred to as the sea because of all of the sea-related constellations. Kit, let's take a dip into the sea. What are the stars that comprise Aquarius? Aquarius is comprised of 11 stars, all of which have IAU-approved names, along with the usual Bayer designations. Most of the approved names are Arabic in origin, and since there's a lot of these stars, I think maybe again, let's just focus on the three brightest ones. Yeah, that sounds like a reasonable start. Okay, so the brightest star in Aquarius is Beta Aquarii. Excuse me, did you hear that, Bayer? Beta Aquarii. <laughs> Poor Johan. I feel like Johan's just going to get dunked on a ton in our podcast. I He is our mobile dunk pad. <laughs> so Beta Aquarii is a yellow supergiant that's six times the mass of our sun. Supergiant seems to imply that's pretty big. But wait, mm-hmm. we should actually talk about the classification of these stars and the different types that come in. Because supergiant's actually a technical term. Yeah, so in astronomy, stars are often classified on two dimensions. Their absolute visible magnitude, basically how bright it is based on a specific set of circumstances, rather than, say, how bright it appears on Earth. And the second dimension is their spectral type. Spectral types always make me think of Annie Jump Cannon. Annie Jump Cannon! 
Finally, a woman in astronomy and history. Shout out to Annie Jump Cannon. You know, she's responsible with Edward C. Pickering for the creation of the Harvard Classification Scheme, which was the first serious attempt to organize and classify stars based on their temperature and spectral types. Mm-hmm. And she went to the same college as our mom. Yes, another Wellesley College graduate from 1900. Our mother is now <laughs> 200 years old. That's why we call her Mother Gothel. Oh my gosh. Sorry, Mom. Um, <laughs> I I definitely want to talk more about Annie Jump Cannon. Uh, what a great name. And also about spectral types more technically. But I think that I want to reserve those for our asterism mini episodes. So maybe we should keep moving here and we'll circle back on Annie Jump Cannon and spectral types another time. Does that sound good? Yeah, I'm excited for this asterism too because Annie Jump Cannon definitely deserves her own little deep dive. Totally. So for today's purposes, let's just say that a spectral type has to do with the temperature and color of the star. Perfect. So these two dimensions come together on what's called a Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. I'm surprised you didn't try to abbreviate it. I'm Personally, I love a good HR diagram myself. And it is often abbreviated HR diagram. So supergiants like Beta Aquarii are a class of star that have a relatively high absolute magnitude and are relatively hot. And so other classifications on the diagram include things like white dwarves, subdwarves, main sequence dwarves, which is what our sun and lots and lots of other stars are, as well as subgiants, giants, bright giants, and the rare hypergiants. I mean, I love it. We got giants, we got dwarves. It makes me wish we had orc stars and elf stars too. <laughs> if Tolkien had been an astronomer, I we mean, might if, have had that. If only, if only. All right, let's get back to the second brightest star, which is Alpha Aquarii. It's a yellow supergiant. It's about 760 light years away. It has the Arabic name Sado Malik, which is from a phrase that means luck of the king. Mm -hmm. Then we have Delta Aquarii. That's 160 light years away. And it's a main sequence dwarf star. Like our sun. But it's probably blue in range. And Delta Aquarii is also known as Scott, which is derived from the Arabic word for shin or leg. I see you gave yourself a single syllable to pronounce. <laughs> Very easy. Good, good. Know your strengths. Um, listen, I probably still got it wrong, too, so sorry. I think you nailed it. Perfect. Uh, before we leave the brightest stars, these three brightest stars, I want to note that Delta Aquarii is also part of the Ursa Major moving group, which is a group of stars that have been identified as potential runaway stars, like my gold star from last month. Shout out to our star Omega Capricorni, star on the run. Tune into Capricornus if you want to learn more about runaway stars. Omega Capricorni about to be dethroned, and I'm honestly truly jealous that you get to choose gold star of the month because... As I said early in this episode, so many cool things happening in Aquarius. So let's take a quick break and you can tell us about your gold star of the month. Welcome back. Okay, Jordan, so many things you can choose from. Meteor showers, Saturn nebula, Helix nebula, Messier objects, asterisms. I'm like, this is, ah, there's so much It's stuff. exciting. So, it's exciting. It is. There's so much cool space stuff. I'm excited to like post pictures of these things. So what did you choose? What gets your gold star this month in Aquarius? I mean, look forward on our Twitter feed to post about Saturn nebula, Helix nebula, Messier objects, asterisms. Those are all wonderful. But my choice kit 
how do you not choose Trappist 1? Oh my gosh, yeah, Trappist 1's really good. Yeah, that's good. I chose Trappist 1 for a few reasons, but first let's get into the name since it's a bit unusual. You may or may not have guessed, but Trappist is an acronym. Our favorite, we love acronyms here. We got IAU, we got LPI, and now we got Trappist, which stands for the Transiting Planets and Planetesimal Small Telescope. It's located at the CIA Observatory in Chile, and it was used to discover the ultra-cool red dwarf star that's now named Trappist-1. We should note that although Trappist-1 is not one of the stars that comprise the constellation Aquarius, constellations also describe areas of space. In this case, Trappist-1 is located in Aquarius near the celestial border. But I don't mean to steal your thunder. Tell us more about Trappist-1. How did it earn your gold star? Well, I chose Trappist-1 mostly because of the planets orbiting it, actually. The star Trappist-1 has five planets orbiting it, And they are extremely creatively named Trappist-1A through (laughs) Trappist-1H. Wow. But I chose Trappist for my gold star specifically for Trappist-1E, which is a planet that is in the habitable zone and could actually have water on it. In other words, it's a pretty good candidate for Earth, too. I'll see you there. (laughs) I mean, it's only 39 light years away, so it's not that far uh, and a great choice. We do love a planet in the habitable zone. So, yeah, Trappist-1, welcome to the Gold Star Club. Well done, Jordan. It's good to have a backup plan. There are three common Greek and Roman myths related to the constellation Aquarius. Did you happen to remember any of these, Kit? No, I did not. Ah, you're losing a little (laughs) bit of cred here. Okay. I'm realizing that my answer for a lot of these Zodiac constellations is going to be, I don't remember or know any of them, which is definitely embarrassing uh, because I really was a myth kid growing up. We both were. But I think that's something that's really fun about this podcast is that some of these Zodiac myths actually aren't super popular or well-known. Let's start with one of the less common of these Aquarius myths. The myth here is just about a Greek king named Cecrops I of Athens. He sacrifices water instead of wine to the gods and is rewarded for this type of sacrifice with a constellation of himself because I guess the gods were really into water that season. (laughs) I mean, listen, I didn't really start drinking water until I was an adult because, as you know, Our mother really likes Diet Coke, and so growing up, we just had a lot of Diet Coke and Diet Soda around, and so I just was like, I don't like water. And it turns out water's really good. (laughs) I mean, maybe that was Zeus's perspective, too. You know, he's just been drinking only wine and Diet Coke for millennia. (laughs) Finally, Seacroft sacrifices him some of this earth water, and he's like, wow, this stuff's actually pretty good for me. It's pretty good. I like suddenly don't have, I'm not tired and I don't have a headache. How weird. I don't know any other explanation as to how you actually do sacrifice water or why it's important, but there's not a lot of information on this part of the myth. This one's just not very common. 
Totally. So the second myth is also related to water and is basically an ancient Greek version of Noah's Ark. So in this version of the story, Aquarius is associated with Deucalion. 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 Yeah, you crushed the pronunciation. <laughs> I've actually I've been practicing. I'm like in the shower, like Deucalion. <laughs> That's what I love about you. Your total commitment. <laughs> totally. Now I'm afraid I'll get it wrong later. So sorry if I do. To all our friends named Deucalion out there, yeah. we apologize. We apologize. So, Deucalion was the son of Prometheus, who was a titan, probably best known for giving fire to humans and being tortured as a result by Zeus and co. Basically forever. Classic. <laughs> yeah, on brand for Zeus. Who, of course, in this myth with Deucalion, is planning a world-ending flood. Because why not? I mean, if you can't torture, you might as well have a world-ending flood. And why not both, as our friend Zeus would say? Pretty much. So in this myth, Prometheus warns his son Deucalion about the coming flood. Deucalion builds a boat, and he and his wife Priya sail for nine days before washing ashore on Mount Parnassus as the only two living humans on Earth. It's a lot like the Noah's Ark myth. Basically, mm -hmm. a vengeful god destroys the earth and only two people survive but this is mm -hmm. a greek version of it for sure this final myth is probably the most well-known and equally the most problematic mm -hmm. here aquarius is identified with ganymede who is a youth in greek mythology and the son of the trojan king tros in these myths he's stolen abducted and taken to mount olympus either by zeus or by eos the goddess of the dawn but either way zeus eventually gets his hands on him kidnaps him brings him up to Mount Olympus, and there he has to kind of act as the, quote, cup carrier to the gods. Or, you know, basically, he's just the personal water boy. Yeah, and let's not forget that the reason Zeus kidnaps Ganymede, either from his family or Eos, as you said, is because Ganymede is just super, super handsome and beautiful, and Zeus is enamored with him to the point where Zeus brings him back home, and Hera is not happy. Not impressed. Not at all. Very, very jealous. And this version of the myth has very icky sexual undertones, and I think is a great example of why we wanted to include Rhett Constellations in the podcast. Yeah, we're not such a big fan of kidnapping and abduction as <laughs> the beginning to any romance stories here at Storytime. Let's take a quick break. And then let's do some analysis of the themes. And at long last, Kit, it's time for us to tell these myths a little bit, or I guess in the case of Ganymede, a little bit differently. Okay, before we can get into the Rhett constellationing, which I really want to do, let's talk about the themes in these myths. So let's start with the first two myths, the king sacrificing water and the Deucalion arc myth. What were the themes and lessons that were present in these myths? I mean, in the first myth, there doesn't seem to be much of a lesson I could dig out rather than it's pretty much always good to be good to Zeus. Make your sacrifices and you'll be rewarded. As long as you're not sleeping with him. Yeah, no, no, don't do that. Or alternatively, in the case of Deucalion, it's also good to be the child of a titan slash god. Either way, really. Well, as long as that god's not fighting or feuding with another god. <laughs> there are a lot of exceptions. You're right. The Greek pantheon can definitely get pretty, pretty petty. 
so petty. I just, it's so, it's so much infighting. I love it. All right. But if we set aside those less than inspiring morals, best case we can say is the sea crops myth reflects how important water is to human life. And the second myth provides an explanation for natural disasters and floods in the world from a pre-scientific perspective. Yeah, definitely. So these stories exist, like so many others, to explain the world and how it works. Water and weather are all central to human life and the human experience, so creating stories about these kinds of things does make sense. But then, when we get to the Ganymede myth, then you're like, well, what? Like, how do we get here? No, kid. It's also about water, for sure. It's about how thirsty our guy (laughs) Zeus is for this uh, kid Ganymede. Oh, gross. That's gross. But it's true. Like, you're not wrong. And that's that's why this story is so troubling. Zeus kidnaps this kid and is gross about it. Yeah, it's really not great. Zeus sees something he likes constantly in Greek myths and then just swoops in and takes Mm it. Ganymede goes from being an autonomous, wholly lived adult into essentially a servant or a slave to the Olympians. He doesn't have any way to get back to his family. He has no way to get back home. He does whatever Zeus wants him to do. Yeah, and that's ignoring or putting aside the sexualization of Ganymede. Though even though, as as I say that, I do want to acknowledge that in some periods of ancient Greece society, this type of romantic relationship between a powerful older man and a younger teenage boy. Maybe it wasn't super common, but it was actually very visible. It had a name called pederasty. Mm -hmm. And so I think that this historical information is useful for just reminding us that what's considered sexually normative or appropriate does vary across place, time, and culture. It is indeed culturally rooted. And that's something we're going to have to dig into a lot. And in Greek mythology, it is kind of filled with different sociocultural norms. It's filled with non-consensual sex. And noticing this social context certainly isn't trying to say, no worries, it was a different time. But I no, do that's think not our helped. intent here, no. No, not at all. But I do think it does help us understand the context of the myth. And at the same time, looking at this myth now, the power differentials are really particularly upsetting. Yeah, it's... Especially upsetting when you think about Zeus as the ultimate power differential. Totally. So this myth really does just reinforce the idea that these powerful older men in actual Greek, ancient Greek society should just get whatever teenage boy they want. Because, of course, if Zeus does it, why shouldn't they? And indeed, there's some evidence that this myth was used to sort of justify these romantic arrangements. Yeah, it's a dangerous example. You can tell who wrote the myth and why. Exactly. Myths in general not only explain the natural world, but they can also reflect and reinforce norms about a variety of different things in a culture. Including pretty unbalanced romantic partnerships in some ancient societies. I mean, we gotta retcon this one. (laughs) We really do. Let's go! segment called Rhett Constellation, Jordan and I tackle the original myths, put our own spin on them, and try to make them more interesting, less cringy, and or to deepen or develop them for the modern era. And right now, I am just thinking so much about the Zeus Ganymede yeah, myth. Yeah, yeah, we got a wreck on the Ganymede myth right off the bat. Let's start there, and then maybe we'll loop back and we can talk more about water and weather myths. Yeah, I will not be able to concentrate until we wash this myth away. All right, yeah, I'll, I'll go first. I kept it pretty simple, Kit. 
I titled mm-hmm. my rec constellation Ganymede the God Killer. Mm. Mm, it's a vengeance <laughs> okay. narrative. And instead of Ganymede just being kidnapped and trapped here on Mount Olympus, my story kind of gives Ganymede a revenge arc and shows that there are consequences for your actions, Zeus. And in this retelling, either by poisoning the water or having insider information that Zeus lets slip, Ganymede finds a way somehow to poison, decapitate, eradicate Zeus. Maybe it's an alliance with other gods. We don't need to know. But basically, Ganymede gets his just rewards. He gets his revenge. And I think in a sense, that does everyone a favor. Because Zeus's list of misdeeds is pretty extensive. And I don't think anyone would really, you know, begrudge Ganymede for, for, for taking out the big guy. I mean, Zeus is a bad god for sure. Doesn't seem to understand consent, power differentials. And I do like the idea of centering the story on consent and bad things happening to bad people. Kit, I'll be the first to admit that my rec constellation isn't super complicated, but I do hope it's at least satisfying in a justice-based schadenfreude sort of way. You know, a lot of stories kind of reinforce this unrealistic ideal that justice gets served, and I guess mine's just another one of those, really. I mean, I do like that, and you know that I would never doubt your creative vision. I really appreciate that about you. (laughs) I just wonder if it would be interesting to rethink the entire power dynamic to start with. So keep the beginning of the story the same. Zeus kidnaps Ganymede and gives Ganymede the job of water bearer. Water boy. (laughs) But in my version, I really want to think about the importance of this job of the water bearer. Water boy. (laughs) Because in ancient Greek society, and of course in some places now, There isn't running water. You can't just open the tap and get water. And people need water to live. Super important. Yeah, it's super important. So in this version, Zeus forces Ganymede into this job of water bearer. And here's the twist. I'm ready for the twist. That now that he has given Ganymede this job, bestowed it upon him, Zeus can no longer get water for himself. And in my version of the story, Zeus needs water to survive, like we all do. And now he requires Ganymede to bring it to him. So this sort of flips the script. Now Ganymede has power. Zeus is dependent upon him, even while Zeus retains, of course, godlike status and powers. Yeah, this is a much better reconciliation. I'll be the first to admit. I mean, you have checks and balances in place here. And now Zeus actually has to, you know, have some respect. It incorporates a lot of the ideas I brought up, but perhaps in a more subtle, nuanced way. I mean, is mine better? Maybe. I mean, maybe. <laughs> Yours is a best-selling short story, for sure. Mine is kind of like that blockbuster hit, Clash of the Titans, where people just want to see Zeus get his head chopped off. And I'm here to deliver it. Oh, I feel so much better that we've read Constellation that one. I think let's maybe start talking about the other two myths, if you're ready. Yeah, I'm ready. I like, I'm glad we got Ganymede squared away. I know we've been thinking and talking about that myth since we started the research. My first message to you is like, oh, Ganymede's not going to be fun. But yeah. all right, that leaves us with Cecrops and Deucalion, two water myths. The first one just seems to say, what did we decide? Water is important? And mm-hmm. what did we decide with Deucalion? Floods are scary? 
<laughs> yeah. They're really hard to retcon. And I feel like, you know, how do you tell water is good differently? I don't know. And then, of course, we have tons of flood retcons. I don't know if we need a specific one about the flood. No, I think pretty much every culture has got their own flood myth. So I'm not sure we can add much to that. But I do want to propose retconstellationing these water and weather myths a bit differently. In my retconstellation, we drop sea crops, we drop mm -hmm. Deucalion, and can we definitely drop Zeus. <laughs> my retconstellation just suggests telling the water myths from the perspective of those who actually bring the water, who are responsible for it, the nymphs. Yeah, totally. There's tons of tons of them out there. Hyades, which is an asterism in Taurus. Yeah, yeah. Okay, tell me more. Well, there are quite a few water nymphs in Greek mythology. Hyades, who you described, brings the rain. And there are also Naiades, who are nymphs of bodies of water. But in Greek myths, they're so often told from the perspective of the male gaze. The mm. nymphs here are seen as objects to be won or chased or desired and captured. But I think it would be interesting to tell these water and weather stories from the nymphs' point of view instead, instead of those dealing with the effects. We can get into maybe why they act the way they do and cause the meteorological phenomenon they do. Maybe they're bringing rain and floods because they're tired of being chased around all the time. Mm. Maybe they use weather as a shield or form of self-defense mechanism. I'm thinking of Storm from X-Men here. Mm. But I'd like to hear a story from that point of view. The idea of nymphs is so good, just centering on a different set of protagonists, especially those who are often overlooked, I think is just super interesting. And this idea kind of reminds me of Circe, which I would say is a retcon about Circe from Madeline Miller. And she definitely talks about how nymphs are treated and cast in really interesting ways, despite the fact that they have considerable power, right? All of these natural phenomenon are under their control. And so I like this same kind of idea. I think it's awesome. Yeah, being able to manipulate the weather is a huge power. And <laughs> I'd love to be able to see why and how they utilize it. I think all these wreck constellations work in different ways to tell a story were there actually consequences for inappropriate or demeaning behavior? Mm -hmm. Whether you're Zeus abducting children or dudes harassing nymphs. Overall, I think the aim of our wreck constellation was to transform the lessons of this story into something that you might actually want to tell a child. I mean, well, I mean, other than the Ganymede, the God Killer. That's a PG-13, very PG-13 <laughs> material. All right, Kit, let's wrap things up with Aquarius. I've had a blast here, but let's move on to our silliest segment. And maybe my favorite, I'm not sure yet, pop culture superstars. In this segment, we'll share our favorite and least favorite occurrences of this month's constellation. And then you and I, Kit, we get to wish upon a star for what we wished existed. Let's start out with you here today, Kit. Why don't you start us off with your favorite Aquarius appearance? My favorite appearance... Oh, I'm Has excited. I, oh, I can't wait to find out. The Aquarius Reef Base. Wow. Do you know anything about the Aquarius Reef Base? Nope. Wasn't my choice. Wasn't okay. my choice. Tell me more. I'm like, I'm like really actually weirdly excited about this. So it's a underwater habitat in the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary. 
It sits on the ocean floor at 62 feet below the ocean's surface. And basically, researchers live down there, so they have to dive down to it. And then once they get into it, they can, like, breathe and, like, take off all their scuba gear. And then they're, like, literally sitting on the floor of the ocean. Um, that's amazing. It's really cool. Yeah, that's like yeah. a space station on the bottom of the sea. Yeah, yes. that's that's really fascinating. Yeah. Oh, great choice. Great choice. I'll definitely post a video, the video I watched of it, because I was like really entranced by this. It just seemed so cool. And it was a truly themed experience, which of yeah. course is in our interest area. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> um, am I doubting my favorite choice? Maybe. But <laughs> I love, it's kind of got like a sci-fi and real life mm -hmm. element to it. It's definitely got some like fantastic futuristic research vessel energy. I'm definitely here for it. Thank you so much for bringing that to my attention as well as the listeners. <laughs> Yeah, tell me what is your favorite appearance oh. of Aquarius in pop culture? Well, my favorite is a musical album by okay. the Danish-Norwegian <laughs> band. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you remember them. They're a band mm -hmm. called Aqua. They are known for their 1997 hit, Barbie Girl. And, I'm familiar. Yep, and that's from their first album, Aquarium. However, after Aquarium, they continued mm -hmm. the theme, their second album, titled Aquarius. I listened to the entire album. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I didn't find much of a bop here. There was a lead <laughs> single called Around the World. It's kind of bratty. It's kind of fun. It was never a radio hit for sure. It was a true <laughs> one-hit wonder. Uh, they had their time and their place. Uh, and maybe people younger than us have no idea this point of reference, but mm -hmm. it brought me it brought me some joy just to reminisce about the uh, Aqua Aquarium Aquarius era that we were so lucky to live through in the late nineties. I don't think I even saw this in my research. <laughs> it popped said, right out to me. <laughs> I like really spoke to you. I think I'm like, uh, I, when you said music, I was like, oh, it's going to be the Aquarius song, right? Let the yeah. sun shine in. But uh -uh. no, wow. Uh -uh. All right, well, I'll have to listen to this um, album, I guess. Uh, or, or not. Maybe I, yeah, or maybe I'll just... I'll send you the link to the lead single. Yeah. Uh, we'll post I, it. I felt particularly ambitious one day. Uh, I gave Aqua, you know, a good 40 <laughs> minutes of my time. Um, but hey, oh. I had to make sure it was my favorite. There were a lot of choices, and I wanted to do my due diligence. Oh, Did I wow, actually incredible. choose it so that I could introduce a younger generation to Aqua? Perhaps. <laughs> Doing the world a service. Wow. Okay. Well, that was that's incredible. Let's get into least favorites. Do you want to start us off with least favorites or should I go first? Oh, I'd love to go first. I've been waiting to discuss this least favorite for a while. It's this okay. TV show from 2015. It's called Aquarius and it stars David Duchovny. That's all I know. Okay. I've never <laughs> seen it and I never will watch it because David Duchovny will always be Mulder to me. And I don't want to mess around with any other characters he thinks he can be. I mean, if it's great, let me know. If it's like a scintillating portrait of life in America in the 21st century, I'll never know. And I don't want to You're know. like, tell me if it's great, but I also won't watch it. No, not at all. I mean, it's my least favorite for a reason. They should never let David Duchovny do anything but X-Files. He oh, wow. should, yeah, he should be in contract with Chris Carter to be making X-Files only. <laughs> Forever. Forever and ever. What about you, Kit? What was your least favorite iteration of Aquarius? 
So I picked two because we didn't share ahead of time what we had picked. So I wanted to make sure that you didn't pick one of mine. But that wasn't on my list because I don't have strong feelings about David Duchovny, I guess. Well, that makes one of us. (laughs) So my um, real least favorite, my first choice, is a super yacht that is named Aquarius. Oh, I already feel like throwing up just the phrase super yacht. Yeah. Okay, tell me more. Yeah, it's a 302-foot yacht Mm. with an elevator and a swimming pool and just like tons of other stuff. And I just like, I don't get it. I'm like, why? I'm super not (laughs) into it. Yeah, so that was my first choice, just yuck. And then my second choice, I do want to just talk about it. Um, because it was just very intriguing and it was a sports drink that's Mm. grapefruit flavored. That is intriguing. (laughs) I mean, when I think of sports drink flavors, of course, I think of Gatorade and Powerade and orange and oh yes, blue, our favorite flavor, blue, blue, as well as ice blue. Um, The idea of turning grapefruit into a performative enhancing sports drink hadn't occurred to me. It sounds gross. I mean, is this something that happens in America? Can I like go to Aldi and pick this up? Oh, I wish. Um, it is doesn't seem to be in the U.S. market. It is indeed called Aquarius. It is popular in other countries, and I did look into like buying some to try it, but it was too expensive. So I was like, mm, I don't, I don't know if I want to spend like fifty dollars on this. But if you do want kids to spend fifty dollars on this, <laughs> you should definitely let us know. We are committed to delivering you the best podcast we can. But no, I mean, I have to imagine it's like as closely related to grapefruit as like Sunny D is to orange juice. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it's got to be, it's got to be super sweetened or something, because you don't, yeah. you don't get off the field after you know two hours of exercise and yearn for that sour, sour grapefruit. Um, no. but hey. Some people love it, and shout out to them for branching into a market that other people hadn't taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. Definitely. All right, Kit. That's fine. That's definitely a least favorite as well. <laughs> now let's get into the most important part of this whole podcast. This is where we talk about, hey, we're in charge. We got control mm-hmm. of the Aquarius branding, the Aquarius name. What do we wish existed? And let's start with you. This is a great idea. So uh, I know last month I came in like really confident and then like quickly fell apart. But this one I feel very good about. Okay, you're ready. Oh, are you? Are you saying your <laughs> seagoat of the sea wasn't a major accomplishment in the realm of creativity? <clears throat> Anyways, <laughs> um, you know how I love robots that do mundane household tasks. My favorite part about you. <laughs> yes, our robot vacuum's name is Lore. So, yeah, I love love that as a concept. So I think there should be a drone-like object that you can put your water bottle or water glass on, and it will go to the fridge door or your tap or your sink, get water, and then bring it back to you. It will be called the Aquarius Automated Water Server. Brilliant. I mean, it's good, right? <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. The same kind of people that are going to have an Aquarius super yacht are the same kind of people that are going to have an Aquarius robot server. For now. Oh, no. For now. Oh, no, no, no. For now. But give it 50 years. It has some Wally vibes for sure, you know, like on the space cruise ship. So, yeah, I, li- I like it as an idea. My choice is kind of similar, kind of not. Okay. But what I want from Aquarius, the water bearer. Mm-hmm. Is an instant hangover cure. 
<laughs> the people here have been needing it for thousands of years. Oh, wow. The problem with being hungover is that, yes, you're dehydrated. Correct? Uh-huh. So I don't know. No. I'm not a scientist. <laughs> I, don't sure. know, I, I don't know anything about drinking. Everything I know, I learned from Zeus uh, secondhand. But from what I have learned, dehydration is a real problem. And the search for a hangover cure has been going on for millennia. My version of Aquarius is either a pill, an injection, an IV, something that directly infuses your body with the life-bearing force of water that you desperately need. Oh my gosh, wait. So it's it's logline or whatever is this going to be like hydrate or die. It's going to be like Aquarius. <laughs> Do you feel like garbage? Get Aquarius. Uh, yeah, I think it'll fill a valuable niche in the marketplace, and I think it will provide some sort of um, natural healing to some of humans' worser instincts. Well, it is only a matter of time before one of these wishes comes true. joining us today as we learned all about the constellation Aquarius. Next month on Starry Time, we'll take on Pisces, the fish of the sky. This has been Kit and Jordan, sisters, lovers of stars and stories. And we'll see you next time on Starry Time. Starry Time.